The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com, that's z-i-o-n-p-b-c.com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. Yesterday, we began looking at Hebrews chapter 5, which introduces us to the topic of Jesus Christ as our better high priest. He was better than Moses. He was better than the angels. And his high priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood of the law. In fact, it is said of him not that he is a priest after the order of the Levites, but a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an interesting character in the Old Testament. Sometimes people like to speculate about who he is, but I think the Lord has given us all we need to know about him. And it's just this, that his priesthood was better and greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And that's why Jesus Christ is called a priest forever after his order and not after Aaron's. Join us as we conclude this sermon about our better high priest and begin to look at some other aspects of Christ's high priestly work. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Oh, 
taketh this honor to himself. Paul, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, talked about the necessity that was laid upon him. He said, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. You know, I'm thankful that God called me into the ministry. I'm thankful for what I get to do. I have the privilege and the honor of standing up on Sunday mornings and preaching the gospel. I have the privilege and honor of ministering to the congregation throughout the week. But beloved, I, I'm I'm not glorying in that because I could not do otherwise. Well, let me just say it this way. I could do otherwise, but like Jonah, I would regret it deeply. <laughs> Jonah's proof that you can run from the call, but Jonah's also proof that God won't let you get away with it very much <laughs> either. Paul said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I preach not. Is that what it says? Or did I leave something off? <laughs> I'm afraid there's many men out there that think that's where it stops. Woe is unto me if I preach not. That's not what it says. Well, it says that, but it doesn't stop there. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The gospel. You understand there's something we've been given to preach. We're not just to, we don't have to come up with little funny stories. We don't have to come up with little three-pointed feel-good messages. It's not my job to be a motivational speaker. I've got something to say to you, but it's not because I've come up with it. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Well, some men, I'm afraid, think that it's woe is unto me if I preach not, but it's woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. He goes on to say, if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward, but if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. I'm not sure if that's, to, I believe that's saying here that he's saying, I didn't volunteer for this. That's basically what he's saying. I didn't volunteer for this. But if I do it with a willing heart, there's a reward. But even if I don't do it with a willing heart, I've still got a dispensation of the gospel committed to me, you see. So, you recall that over, and we won't turn there, of course, but over in Exodus chapter 28, Aaron didn't volunteer to be the high priest. God said to Moses, take Aaron thy brother, and he named his sons there as well that he may minister unto me in the priest's office he had just finished all the introduction to the tabernacle and the holy things and how to instructions on on how to build them 
And now he calls Aaron. God calls Aaron. Moses didn't call Aaron. Aaron didn't call Aaron. God called Aaron. He was not man called, but God sent. And that's the way preachers are supposed to be in our day. And only then, only if he is called from among them and can identify with them, will he be able to minister to them. See, going back to Jesus, that's, that's exactly what Jesus was able to do. In chapter 2 and verse 16 again, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, where in all, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. See, Jesus was able to do that because he was called from among them. He could identify with them, and now he can minister to them, you see. And notice in verse um, 5 here, he says, So also, this is back in chapter 5 now, Hebrews 5 and verse 5, So also Christ glorified not himself to, make, to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Now, I want you to understand this does not mean that Christ once did not exist, but somehow became begotten through the process of time or some natural process, or that he wasn't, it doesn't even mean that he wasn't always our intercessory high priest. He's always been that. He's always been our high priest. He didn't become this, but he was designed for this, and he is our high priest forever, okay? He's our high priest forever. We're going to see that. But what this is saying is, is that he didn't just take it on himself, he was called by God to do this. He didn't usurp the Godhead. He was designated and designed to be this high priest. You see, Jesus is our high priest. He meets all these qualifications and in fact exceeds all these qualifications as we're going to see. Because as we continue reading, it says, so also. In other words, just like these men, these, these that are called from among men, they, they have these qualifications. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. We're not going to go back to he, uh, Psalm chapter 2. That's where this is quoting. But over in Psalm chapter 2, you remember this is when the heathen raged and the people imagined the vain thing and all that. You know, in the context of all the rebellion of man, God said to his son, You're my son. Today have I begotten you. In other words, I have called you out. Not that you just came into existence at this point in time. He's always existed. He's always been and ever will be the eternal son of God. But he's saying, you're the son. You're the son. And there is no limitation on his priesthood. Look at verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now notice that this is important. I, I think, Lord being our helper, as we go through this book, we'll come back to this in a little more detail. And I don't profess to know all the details, all of the significance of this comparison to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's an interesting and, and, and enthralling figure, really, if you go back and read about him in the 14th chapter of Genesis. Jesus is called a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron, not after the order of the Levitical priesthood. I think one of the first things we need to take from this is that Jesus Christ is not just a successor to the Levitical priesthood. He's not just our new high priest and things are going to go on like they were before. 
just in a different way because he's perfect and divine. This, this, after, this quote after the order of Melchizedek comes from Psalm 110. And it's also quoted or referred to in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 10, chapter 6 and verse 20, chapter 7 and verse 11, chapter 7 and verse 17, and chapter 7 and verse 21. That's, that's one, two, three, four, five, six times here in this book alone. Six times that he's referred to as being after the order of Melchizedek. Like I say that we'll speak of this hopefully, Lord being our helper in more detail later, but understand that first and foremost this means that he wasn't just some super Arab. He wasn't some super Levite. He was actually, he actually superseded Aaron and the Levites as our divine high priest. And another thing we need to understand from this is that this means there is no division between his priesthood and his kingship. Now that was a no-no under the law. The king could not be the priest and the priest could not be the king. It's interesting that during the interim time between the time of Malachi and the time of the New Testament, you know, Malachi was the last Old Testament book and about 400 years passed until uh, the gospels, uh, until the time of Christ and new revelation came. There was a period in there where the Maccabees took over and in that, in that time period there, which was not, I believe, uh, sanctioned by God, there was, a, there was a merging of the priesthood and the kingship. The king was the priest and the priest was the king. But that's not the way it was back in that day. See, he, we're told that he is the son of God. Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And we're also told that he is uh, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As son of God, where does he sit? He sits on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where the son ought to sit. That's where the prince ought to sit. In, in any kingdom, that's where the son of the king sits, is at the right hand of the king. That's where he sits because he is also king of kings and lord of lords. He is very God of very God. And that's where he should be. But also understand that as high priest... He intercedes for us as the high priest did under the law. In this case, Christ is both king and high priest. So he's not according to the Levitical line. He's after the order of Melchizedek. You remember Saul, King Saul? He sacrificed over there before he went to battle. And Samuel came along after and said, you're not supposed to be doing that. You remember Uzziah? Uzziah was a king that when he got lifted up in pride, he went into the temple to burn incense and to perform the duties of the high priest. They said, it appertaineth not unto thee, O king, to be burning this incense and to do these things. And because he did that, God struck him with leprosy. That's how serious it was. The king was never to be the high priest. The high priest was never to be the king. But in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is both king and high priest. And that's why Jesus is a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. You know, Melchizedek, let me just, let's just turn back over there to the 14th chapter of Genesis for just a moment. This, is, this account here is after Abraham had gone out to the battle of the kings and rescued Lot and brought him back. And after the battle was over and Abraham had delivered them, we're told the king of Sodom went out to meet him and, and some others. And then in verse 18 it says, And Melchizedek, king of, king of Salem, 
brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. So the king of Salem, by the way, Salem is the root word there, shalom, peace. And I believe it's also a reference to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem would be ultimately. He was the king there in the place where ultimately the temple would be, <laughs> Melchizedek. And there's a lot of theories about who Melchizedek was, and I could go into all those, but it doesn't really matter. God tells us all we need to know. He tells us that Melchizedek was a king who was also a priest. That is what our Lord Jesus Christ is today. Not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And praise God, there is no separation between his humanity and his divinity. Look at verse 7 here. Who in the days of his flesh, not the days he occupied a body, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, I know many commentators, many preachers, they try to point to different aspects of Jesus' earthly ministry, of his statements, his sayings, especially in the garden there of Gethsemane. They try to point to different things that they identify as his human side or his divine side. I, I, I don't believe there's a way to really separate them. <laughs> and I think it's not a wise endeavor to try to do that. You can say, well, maybe he looked more human here and he looked more divine there. I know on the Mount of Transfiguration he appeared as a divine uh, in his divine glory, I get that, but and I know there were times he wept and there things. But but to to say, well, that's when he's human. That's when he, that's not the way it was. He was divine and human at the same time, and there's no way to separate him. And these verses really are an elaboration on chapter four and verse fifteen, where he says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He is touched by the feeling of our infirmities, and it's this is this is important. Okay. In verse 7 here where we were just read about him offering up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, I believe that's a, that's a reference to the garden there of Gethsemane. And, and notice that what we see here, we're seeing that similar to those Levitical priests or the high priest in that day, he could identify with the weaknesses of the flesh. I made a statement this morning about the trouble I have sometimes sleeping. Wake up at 3.15, 3.30, sometimes 4 o'clock. And that's when I'm assaulted the most by Satan. That's when all the troubles of my life come down upon me and I lay there wrestling with them in my mind and heart. I can't get them out of my mind. I can't get them out of my heart. And there's times when I just have to cry out to God and say, God, save me, help me, get me through this. And I've been in situations that were desperate situations where I needed God's deliverance and I felt that that agony of soul, that agony of spirit. But whatever agony of spirit and soul I've ever felt, he felt it more. And he is able to identify with me. You see, listen, think, remember, he had no sin, right? He was a sinless, perfect, divine, and human man. And yet, and yet, and don't ask me to explain it, I can't get all these intricacies explained, even to my own satisfaction, much less yours. And yet, Paul says, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I, I can't even fathom the implications of that statement. 
the thrice holy God, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, who knew no sin. He was not a sinner. He had no sin nature. There was a point in time as he hung on that cross where he became sin for us. And I don't believe that was just some kind of didactic, theoretical statement. That's not, oh, there's sin. That's interesting. I see it over here. That's, he became sin. That which he hated, he became. That which repulsed him, he became. That which was anathema to him, he became. I don't understand how it happened. I don't understand all the implications. But I know that because he became sin for me, he can identify with me a sinner here in this earth. My goodness. <laughs> and see... I think that's part of what he's pointing us to here in verse 7. He's, he's reminding us that in the garden, you know, Jesus wasn't worried about dying. I mean, I'm sure he didn't look forward to the experience. Not like, I don't look forward to the experience. But as far as death itself, big deal. We close our eyes here, we wake up there. <laughs> he knew he was going to be resurrected, but he also knew he was going to be separated from God. I don't understand that either. <laughs> I can't explain it all, but I know he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was some degree of separation that had never been experienced by the Godhead in eternity past, never will be experienced by the Godhead in eternity future, but for those hours there on that cross, some period of time, there was a separation, and I believe that's where his agony came in. That's pointing us to that experience, that passion, that agony where he prayed unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard. Now, this is really what I wanted to get to about that. I don't believe he's asking there to, to avoid the cross. That's not what he's saying there. That's, you know, some will say, well, that's the human side of him, dreading the cross and saying, Lord, please don't let me go that. No, I don't believe that. I believe what he's praying there is, God, sustain me through the agony of bearing the sins of your people and bring me through death into resurrection and don't leave my soul in the grave. You know, he was willing to do it if it took that. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, that's part, he said, nevertheless, not my will but thine. God, if it's your will to leave me in hell forever, I'm, I'll do it. I've committed. I'm going to do it. I've set my face like a flint. I'll do whatever it takes. But you know, he trusted God. <laughs> Because he was God, he trusted himself, you might say. I don't understand it <laughs> all, but I can tell you this. He was not praying, Lord, I just don't want to go to the cross. He was praying, Lord, take me through it. You know, we're told in one place, I think it's the 12th chapter of the book of uh, Hebrews, that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He didn't enjoy the cross, but he endured the cross. And he says, Father, bring me through that and restore me to that place where we were before the cross, which is perfect harmony. And, and again, let me just say this. It's very important to understand that Jesus was not just play acting in the crucifixion. This wasn't some game. It wasn't some movie. It wasn't some script. He wasn't just play acting. It was real. It was intense. And it was agony beyond any agony that you and I will ever experience. Verse 8 says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, that doesn't mean he was previously disobedient. You know, I had to learn obedience, and I had to learn it sometimes in a hard way. My children had to learn it 
uh, sometimes in a difficult way. But he was always obedient. What this means is he just now experienced what it meant to be, dis- to be obedient through difficult circumstances. You know, it's easy to be obedient when things are good, right? It's no problem obeying in heaven, but Christ came down to earth and he obeyed completely and fully here on this earth in the worst circumstances you could think of, he was obedient. You know, that ought to teach us that there's no excuse for us to be disobedient because there's nothing we've ever faced that he faced. Now to bring this to a close, just these last couple of verses remind us that As our great high priest, Jesus effected and completed our eternal redemption through his role as our intercessor. As our great high priest, he did it. Look at verse 9. And being made perfect. By the way, that doesn't mean he wasn't already perfect. That's not what that's talking about. It just means that now he has demonstrated that he is the perfect sacrifice that all the previous sacrifices that were imperfect are pointing us to, you see. Notice over in Hebrews chapter 10 just for a moment. Let's just turn over there just for a second. Verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now notice it's a pretty logical argument that the writer here, who I believe is Paul, makes. He says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if those sacrifices were perfect, they wouldn't have had to keep doing them. But they had to keep doing them over and over and over. Would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins? But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance of sin or remembrance again made of sins every year. You see, some taught in my growing up years, I'd hear it said that, well, those, especially on the Day of Atonement, that, that sacrifice rolled the sins forward for another year. Let me tell you something. The sacrifices of, of the blood of bulls and goats didn't roll one sin. It didn't touch one sin. It just reminded them they were sinners. That's what they did. That's what those sacrifices did. It reminded them that they were sinners and that they needed a perfect sacrifice because he goes on to say, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Even for a year, even for a day, even for a second, the sacrifices of bulls and goats can't do that. But see, he was perfect. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The word author there means the cause or the originator. Salvation, beloved, doesn't originate with an act on the part of man, but with the work on the part of Christ, the work that he completed on the cross. And notice he says, unto all them that obey him. Again, please understand, that's not teaching salvation by works. Oh, you've got to obey him in order to be saved. That would make you the cause of salvation. <laughs> It would, it would be you. You've got to exercise your faith. You've got to exercise good works. You got to, that would make you the cause of salvation. He's the cause. He's the author of salvation. But what it's teaching here is assurance of salvation to all those who do obey. There are many of God's children who do not obey, and yet they are eternally saved. But all those who do obey can have the assurance that they are eternally saved, you see. I don't have any assurance when I'm not obeying. <laughs> it's the, the promises still apply to me. All the promises of God, the foundation of God standeth sure, the Lord knoweth them that are His. (laughs) But you see, when I'm being disobedient, I don't have any assurance of that. When I'm being obedient, I have assurance. Those that obey can have assurance here. And then notice verse 10, he just returns here to the calling of Christ as the high priest, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
You see, it's after the order of Melchizedek, as we've already said, and not just after the Levitical order. And this sets him apart in a way no earthly or Aaronic priest could ever have been set apart. No earthly priest, no Levitical priest, even a Christ that was only after the order of the Levites would not have been sufficient to be our perfect intercessory sacrifice. Remember the overall theme of Hebrews is better. Remember what we said the topic tonight was our better high priest. Here we see that everything about Christ is better than the law. His priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. His work is better than Aaron's work. And the point that the writer is making here, remember the first part of this chapter was don't be going back to the stuff that's not so good. And in fact, the whole point, I believe, of the book of Hebrews in many ways is to remind us not to go sliding back into the old law service. He told the Galatians over there, I marvel that you're so soon removed from the grace of God into that which is going back into the old law. He's going back into the servitude of the law. And the point here is, why would you want to go back to the old way when Christ's way is so much better? He is our better high priest. He is our perfect high priest. And he finished the work of our eternal salvation because he was that perfect sacrifice. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.